0: Hello, and welcome back to the China Insider, a podcast from the China Center at Hudson Institute.
1: Miles, how are you doing? Very good, Wilson, and uh, I hope you're doing well. I am. Thanks. It's it's really good to see you. Well, good to see you. And uh, for our listeners, this is uh, going to be a very bittersweet session uh, because uh, our... Uh, incredible host Wilson um is going to move on to a to something that's more important he's going to be uh, greatly missed and uh, for the last half a year uh, this podcast has achieved great success and much of that is owing to uh, Wilson's uh, consistent professionalism and his insights and uh, I really enjoy uh, your contribution and enjoy uh, having you as a host and I hope you you all the best in whatever your future pursuit
0: Thank you Miles that's that's really generous of you um and this is this is my last episode hosting The China Insider is going to continue though so everyone everyone should stay tuned to this channel continue to rate and review leave comments it's been a real pleasure uh, to read those reviews um and to see this podcast grow as Miles said and Miles I'd like to before we get into the conversation today really thank you um because when we met at the state department You were unbelievably generous to me uh, in teaching me about Chinese history, about U.S.-China relations, and you really changed the way that I think about those issues, which I'm really, really grateful for, because I think you are right, and that's the most important thing, and that's why I wanted to continue... This conversation after we left the State Department and the China Insider Podcast has been a great platform for me to continue learning from you uh, and to share you, the most important part of this podcast, with our audience. Um, So with that said, uh, we thought that this week we would go into a few topics that are not just in the news every day, but sort of longer term issues between the U.S. and China and about Chinese history, because uh, Miles is a historian from whom I've, I've learned a lot. And there are a lot of things going on in the news today that have really long histories uh, that it's really important to understand. So Miles agreed to indulge me today by going through not what's, not what's in the news, but sort of longer lessons from history that we can all learn from. And the one that first came to mind for, for both Miles and me is the legacy of a man uh, who's been at the center of U.S.-China relations for over 50 years. Uh, that's Henry Kissinger. He turned 100 on Saturday, which is is an unbelievable milestone in any person's life. His son actually had a column in the Washington Post that talked about his father's longevity. Um, And Henry Kissinger has had an amazing life. He was born in Germany. Uh, He escaped just before the Holocaust. He fought with the Allies in World War II. He helped to liberate a concentration camp. He's been active in his 90s. He wrote two books in the last couple of years but we really want to focus on just two years of his life to start off this conversation. That's 1971 and 1972, when Kissinger went to China and then Nixon followed the year after and opened up the era of engagement. So, Miles, um, to start off, those headlines from 1971, 1972, really shocked the world, surprised everyone, but that moment had been coming for a long time. So I wondered if you could talk us through what brought the two countries to that moment, and what was the significance of it?
1: Well, first of all, uh, uh, thanks for that uh, overall review of Mr. Henry Kissinger. You said it's uh, it's not a news. <laughs> this uh, anything about Henry Kissinger is news, uh, <laughs> and uh, I mean happy birthday to this great man. And he um, um, he's turned a um, hundred, as you said, Saturday, and to uh, to live up to. Um, 100 years uh, is not a a small accomplishment, despite all this tremendous progress in biomedicine and health industry. He's very active and he still maintains a robust presence in international politics and um, a very important voice of uh, uh, geopolitical wisdom. And for that, I have great admiration for this man. Now, of course, the legacy of uh, Mr. Henry Kissinger are are many uh, faceted, Uh, of course, the most the biggest legacy 50 years from now will be his longevity and his staying power in international affairs. Overall, I think Mr. Kissinger is a man of a past zeitgeist uh, whose genius and wisdom are critically hinged on global geopolitical situations at a time, but now no longer exist. And when you talk about the 1971, 1972, you have to remember Mr. Kissinger uh, was a fixer. He was a presidential fixer. He was on order by President Nixon to go to China to fix a problem. The most important problem at the time was the U.S. was in the quagmire in Vietnam. And because Mr. Nixon, by 1971, began to panic because his uh, 1968 election was about his promise to Americans that he would end a war in Vietnam. And not only did he not end the war, the war under his administration had expanded the time to Cambodia and Laos. So he was into a major problem uh, for his re-election in 1972. So he want to send Mr. Kissinger to go to China and to go to Soviet Union as well, don't forget that, to end the supply lines to North Vietnam, and which is very correct and is, is a political genius move. I think it's the most important impetus for, for the Nixon um, visit to China in 1972. Of course, China was not really interested in just uh, uh, helping the Americans get out of uh, Vietnam. China wants to bargain. Their bargain is much, much more strategic, uh, much, much more uh, global. In other words, China wants to, to work with the United States on a much larger scale, not just about Vietnam. If you read the documents, you can see that it was the Chinese that constantly raised the stake of the uh, Nixon's visit to China, not Americans. So we go in. We went in with something very specific about Vietnam, and China said, know what about Taiwan?" Kissinger said, "Okay, forget about Taiwan. What about the, you know our representation at the UN? You know we we help with that. And then you know what about the Soviet Union? Um, Kissinger, of course, you know we, we're in the Cold War, so we can forge an alliance against the Soviets." Even though Kissinger knew at the time to end American's quagmire in Vietnam, we needed both the Soviet and Chinese assistance. Remember, at the time, 1971, China, uh, its biggest threat did not come from America. It came from the Soviet Union. The two countries, Soviet Union and China, almost went to a nuclear war in 1969. 1970, 1971, and uh, Mao's... Uh, 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 right-hand man, uh, Marshall Lin Biao, tried to defect the Soviets, uh, so, to a Soviet Union. So it was a really big deal. So China played the American card much more adroitly than Americans played the China card. So this is basically the larger perspective about 1971, 1972 opening to China. As a result, of course, we created a 1972 uh, framework that would guide the U.S.-China policy for the next uh, half a century. Before we get to the 1972
0: framework, I'd like to delve into a little bit more of what you just said, because it kind of goes against conventional wisdom, as I as I understand it. You said that China in 1971 perceives not the United States as its number one enemy, uh, but the Soviet Union. Um, so conventional wisdom in the U.S. is that by going to China in 71, 72, we are getting China on our side during the Cold War, and it's kind of a master move in the era of triangular diplomacy. You're saying there's another side to that story, though, because China and the Soviet Union had already split. Where was that coming from, and what were relations like?
1: Well, the Chinese-Soviet split took place in the late 1950s and early 1960s, and it went open in 1961, 1962, after the Cuban Missile Crisis. And then that's, this is basically you know, uh, was the uh, the number one threat to the Chinese Communist Party's regime survival because uh, in the grand competition for the leadership of the communist movement worldwide, Moscow and Beijing had a fundamental clash of ambitions. Yet they share something in common. Uh, that is, the, they both support the North Vietnamese communists in a war against the United States in Vietnam. So there's some kind of competition for the favor of, uh, of Hanoi during much of the uh, war in Vietnam. And in the end, uh, China actually lost the competition to the Soviets because China's insistence on the Vietnamese uh, communists was to to wage a protracted war against the Americans. In other words, you know, it's a Mao-style people's war, and you get you get Americans into the quagmire, and the U.S. will be exhausted and, and die. Soviet Union said, "Well, you fight the the, uh, the Americans, you got to use high tech weapons, right? Because the U.S. is is high tech military. Basically, you know, the Vietnamese adopted both, so they uh, adopted Chinese strategy of a protracted war. The war lasted very long. But then, as the the irony is, uh, um, if the war lasted very long, to in order to fight the war effectively, Vietnamese would rely more and more on the high tech weapons. Only Soviet could provide, China could not." That means, uh, you know, Sam's missile, MiG fighters. And of course, keep in mind, at the time, China uh, went totally wacky uh, uh, with the Cultural Revolution. So uh, it really didn't have much of the uh, sort of uh, credibility in in national affairs. So the Vietnamese, you know, they were, of course, all communists, they they sympathized with China, but they thought Chinese basically, they were were totally out of their mind. So in the end, by the beginning of 1970s, the Vietnamese uh, moved much closer to the Soviets. And this is the reason why uh, a few years later, Vietnam and uh, China would also split openly and which would lead to the overthrow of the Chinese popular regime in Cambodia, which is a Khmer Rouge in 1975. When that happened, China basically decided, you know, Vietnam is no good. They're going to be punished. And uh, when they want to punish the Vietnam, they basically, um, it depends more on playing the American card. Uh, That's where the 1972 framework had become much more useful and ultimately lead to the uh, full-blown war between Vietnam and China in 1979.
0: That's really good background. So let's continue on through the history. Um, In 1972, uh, when Nixon goes to China, so Kissinger Kissinger goes uh, in the summer of 71— And then on July 15th, Nixon gives a TV address in Burbank, California. It's a seven-minute address. He reveals that Kissinger went, and it grabs headlines around the world. Kissinger goes again in October. That's the same time that the UN General Assembly passes Resolution 2758, kicking out Taiwan, what they call the representatives of Chiang Kai-shek, and seating the PRC. And then Al Haig goes in January, and that lays the groundwork Uh, For Nixon to go in February '72, so can you just say what happened in February '72 while Nixon was there, and what is the lasting legacy of that visit?
1: Well, basically, you know, all the major agreements had reached uh, um, uh, by that time. So Nixon went there just as a um, to record the moment of history uh, because Nixon needs that for his 1972 re-election campaign. The 1972 framework uh, uh, that would determine the half-century a U.S.-China relationship um, in the decades to come, there are many faceted, uh, but one of the uh, you know, let me see. The the most important understanding was that uh, uh, U.S.-China were going to pursue common interests. In other words, we would pursue the area where we would agree we feel comfortable with. And then about this uh, political, ideological disputes, human rights um, and even Taiwan, we don't talk about it. And so uh, we narrowed the scope of our engagement with China. At the time, it looks pretty good because of those contingencies of the Soviet Union and there is uh, the need for, uh, for détente, and there is uh, obviously the most urgent uh, need for Mr. Nixon was uh, U.S. getting out of Vietnam. Those were the specific historic conditions that really uh, made the 1972 agreement possible. China and the United States had been in total isolation and in absolute hostility for 22 years. That's why it's so important for for the world to see this moment of peace and give uh, the world uh, a lot of hope at the time. Um, And hope and hype, I would say. Now that narrow, a limited scope of engagement with China is great news for the Chinese uh, because uh, they thought uh, uh, we are easy. We give up on a lot of things on Taiwan. There's, there, there is a, a, a lot of a, a, a ground uh, we didn't insist upon, and Taiwan was obvious, um, obviously kicked out of the United Nations uh, during even during Kissinger's second trip to China in 1971. And China was uh, was uh, delighted, and so they wanted to make all the agreements permanent. They thought Americans might change mind with the you know next cycle of elections, uh, so that's why they insist on something called the communiqué. Uh, so that's the begin, that's the background of the Shanghai communiqué. China wants to permanentize uh, what uh, has been agreed upon. There are two more communiques uh, in the years to come, and uh, so that's the commonly known as the three communiques. Uh, which ultimately led to an American switch of diplomatic recognition from Taiwan Republic of China to People's Republic of China in Beijing in 1979 under the Qatar administration.
0: So I want to get to Taiwan um, in a second, but I, I also want to go through the Shanghai communique with you really quickly. It's 16 points long, and points one through five are basically the U.S. and China talking about how how they got there, what what led them to that particular moment. But one thing that you pointed out to me a while ago is that from point six onwards, a lot of it is the U.S. and China kind of stating opposite positions or or at least different positions. So uh, the PRC talks about American imperialism and uh, the United States talks about the need for peace and stability around the world. So can you talk about like... What's a good way to think about the China about the Shanghai Communique, given that not everything was agreed upon
1: there? It's a way for both sides to state their position. Uh, not necessarily for internal use, but for public display, to show that America, Richard Nixon could talk to the American's adversary, you know, um, there's uh, there, therefore there's a going uh, there's a saying that goes uh, only Mr. Nixon could go to China because he had this impeccable anti-communist uh, uh, credential. Yeah, going back to the Alger Hiss uh, case in the 1950s. That's right, uh, Alger Hiss case and uh, uh, in 1950s as a member of the uh, House Un-American Activities Committee. But the Shanghai communicate also is the problem. I think it's uh, it's really the. So the original sin of many of the problems, particularly with regard to Taiwan, the Shanghai community recognized there was one China, but the Chinese government uh, insists on that basically American recognition of Beijing as the only and sole representative of uh, China, including Taiwan. So Americans sort of play the, the war game a little bit. In the end, we say, you no, know, we recognize there was such a statement about Taiwan being part of China. But we recognize that doesn't mean we endorse. So there's a, a some kind of a linguistic ambiguity there. But both sides also agree to two other very important principles guiding the Taiwan issue. That is, American objects to use of force to change the status quo in Taiwan Strait. So in other words, we don't want China to wage the war against Taiwan. Another thing that says is, uh, any political settlement about the future of Taiwan must be agreed to by both sides of, uh, of Taiwan Strait. And uh, so those two elements, plus the one China statement, should be the integral parts of American's policy toward China, toward Taiwan, and toward the entire bilateral trilateral relationship. And China wants to insist on only one, that is, you know, one China. Uh, That's the difference between one China principle insisted on by China uh, versus the one China policy uh, insisted upon by the United States. So, Miles, uh, President
0: Nixon called uh, that trip to China, quote, the week that changed the world. Um, So just to give an overall summation of the legacy of that period and of Henry Kissinger, who, again, just turned
1: 100 over the weekend, how do you think about that? Half a quarter century later, just before Mr. Nixon's passing away, he said his opening to China in 1972 might have created Frankenstein, and not from President Nixon himself. The reason is that uh, uh, it was a temporary solution to a much larger, uh, complicated uh, bilateral relationship. As I said earlier, Mr. Kissinger is a presidential fixer He fixed the problem uh, with great skill, but the problem itself would not go away, and it would create a bigger problem for the United States uh, in the long run. Um, For example, yes, we got out of Vietnam, but ultimately, Communist Vietnam won and committed uh, more egregious crimes after uh, uh, their victory. And also, Mr. Kissinger facilitated the opening of China, but at a great cost, I might say and made China uh, what Mr. Uh, Nixon said a possible Frankenstein. So um, in the 1971 trip and the subsequent uh, meetings between Kissinger, uh, Nixon, Mao, and Zhou Enlai, the Chinese side insisted we would not, we should not use U.S. State Department own interpreters. This is just egregious demand. And Mr. Kissinger, Mr. Nixon agreed to that. And so, this is not really uh, uh, appropriate. And uh, you might have some kind of very, very uh, permanent damage to, uh, to the correct understanding of a strategic intent of both sides. I'm not saying there are misunderstandings, but that's potential. So, Mr. Kissinger was a great man. Uh, but it, again, he's a man of, of the past zeitgeist. Because I think, you know, um, I have some problems with, uh, um, with uh, the entire 1970s diplomacy uh, with regard to China in particular. That is, I think Miss Kissinger uh, may have misread Chinese history. Uh, I'm a trained historian, and uh, um, I read Kissinger's books, and he had this uh, understanding of China um, as a nation as being burdened by 2,000 years of imperial history. In other words, China ultimately is a nationalist country and eager for its great revival of the nation. But that's a misreading. Of the zeitgeist and ethos of modern Chinese history, uh, more than 100 years ago, since the May Fourth Movement of 1919, and I think you know uh, the major ethos of Chinese history um, is not for uh, a national revival, uh, but for Mr. Democracy and Mr. Science. Um, it's a the uh, May Fourth Movement is the Chinese enlightenment that reject. China's imperial past embraced the new age of individual freedom and constitutional democracy in particular. So I think Mr. Kissinger may have exaggerated the degree to which China's two millennia history has exerted upon contemporary ethos of China. Number two, if I read Mr. Kissinger, when I read Mr. Kissinger and his books and his writings and even his speeches, I mean, he had this really intriguing definition of what constitutes the Chinese. He, he used the phrase, the Chinese, all the time. L- after listening to a while, uh, you, you will realize when you talk about Chinese, he's talking about the senior leaders of Chinese Communist Party. Not an ordinary Chinese, the dissidents, the, uh, the, the, the other voices from Chinese society, certainly not about the Taiwanese and Hong Kong, you know, all these guys, people. Uh, so I have the problem with that definition. So that's why it's an it's a approach top-down and, and also, in 1970, during the Cold War, I understand that the secret diplomacy may be warranted. But in today's world, secret diplomacy no longer is viable. Not great at forming consensus, even within the government. Uh, uh, Mr. Kissinger had this uh, very strong dislike of the State Department, <laughs> for example. Yeah,
0: cut them out entirely from the normalization, or from the opening to China.
1: That's right, so that really, really enhanced the, uh, the, the the inter-service rivalry within the US government, which is not really good, which would let the Chinese to exploit uh, um, our uh, our vulnerability. And also, I might say, you know, like many great minds in our time, such as uh, George Kennan, and I think Mr. Kissinger understand perfectly well the international affairs, uh, but uh, I don't think uh, great minds like George Kennan and Mr. Kissinger would fit 100% well uh, to American democracy. Because American foreign policy has become much more democratic and transparent. The era of over-reliance on a few experts is gone. American people are no longer as apathetic to foreign affairs as in the 70s and 60s. Congress, for example, is now playing much more uh, uh, important role in deciding and formulation um, of foreign policy. That does not uh, diminish uh, Mr. Kissinger as a great man. And, and the, his greatest contribution is to add the intellectual dimension to American foreign policy at a time when most people were not thinking about global affairs from intellectual and ideological uh, personal view. Unfortunately, I believe that uh, that kind of intellect contradicted with his role as a presidential fixer because fixer has to be very, very problematic and sometimes at a great cost of compromising your principles.
0: I think it's a good reminder that more than 50 years later, um, things change and we get to see how policies that might have been well-intentioned or made sense in the time change. And we talked a lot about Taiwan in the last segment, Miles, and I want to talk about Taiwan in this segment as well, because a lot has changed with Taiwan since 1971, 1972. Uh, It's a democracy, but we no longer recognize it. It no longer has a seat at the United Nations um, and it's one of the places that people paying attention to foreign affairs focus on the most. It's a, it's a geopolitical hotspot in the world. And you had a really interesting piece uh, recently that's talked about how thoughts about defending Taiwan have also changed over the last few decades. You call it the, the globalization of the defense of Taiwan. So I want to ask you what, what you mean by that when you say that the, the defense of Taiwan has
1: globalized. The Chinese government always insists that uh, uh, the issue of Taiwan is uh, just a uh, very regional; it's their business. It's about issue of sovereignty, uh, who should own Taiwan, and they insist that uh, there is a robust Taiwanese independence movement, which doesn't even really exist. Uh, people in Taiwan, left, you know, uh, from all sides, uh, across the political spectrum, always insist that Taiwan's overwhelming consensus is they want to maintain status quo. There is no need for Taiwan to seek new independence because Taiwan is already an independent country since 1949. Its name is Republic of China in Taiwan. But the reason I said, the reason I wrote that piece is because I believe uh, the Taiwan issue has become part of the global fight for freedom against tyranny, peace against aggression, especially with the, uh, the war in Ukraine. It's very, very clear that Putin and Xi share exactly the same logic of aggression. That's why uh, global awareness of the commonality between war in Ukraine and China's threat of war against Taiwan, uh, it's pretty obvious to me. It is China that had made uh, the defense of Taiwan a globalized issue, because China has used Taiwan as a pretext to develop military capabilities for global domination. China now has space command and control capabilities. Its Blue Water Navy is all over the place. It has uh, conducted massive acquisition campaign of global choke points and deep water ports. It has global satellite relay and tracking stations. It engaged in active creation and formation of global security and economic alliances uh, such as uh, Shanghai Cooperation Organization and the BRICS. None of this is about Taiwan. Uh, So the Battle of Taiwan will only be the beginning of China's relentless march toward global domination. That's why major countries, notably the U.S., U.K., France, Germany, Japan, South Korea, India, Vietnam, Philippines, and the key international military and political organizations, such as NATO and the EU, have all made clear to China that military takeover of Taiwan will meet strong resistance and the CCP's cost, of such aggression will be prohibitive and fatal. So uh, both uh, the Secretary General of NATO, Stoltenberg, and uh, EU's uh, uh, top diplomat, Joseph Borrell, have made a statement very specific about NATO's uh, resolve and the EU's resolve to defend Taiwan. And then I might also add, lastly, uh, Taiwan's uh, defense is internationalized; uh, it's globalized because Taiwan is no longer a tiny country of little consequence. Taiwan is a country of great insignificance now in the global community. For example, it, it has near-complete domination of high-end semiconductors, and it has its biomedicine, its infectious disease its research and prevention, its chemical industries, etc., etc., are really remarkable. Now, when it comes to the United States. While PRC is United States' number three trade partner after Canada and Mexico, the tiny Taiwan is number eight. It's a model of global good citizenship in addition, and it's a shining beacon of freedom in Asia and the source of inspiration for the repressed and unfree and captive nation of the PRC. So all in all, I think, you know, uh, president of South Korea said it very well a few weeks ago. He said, you know, like North Korea, Taiwan is, not, is no longer a regional issue. It's a global issue. And uh, uh, in my view, for the United States, Taiwan is our new West Berlin. And so I might say, it should be an in Taiwanese. So I want to ask one more question about this, because you you have a
0: really interesting thesis about U.S.-Taiwan relations in particular, and I want to drill down on that part of Taiwan's global defense. So U.S. relations with Taiwan have been governed over the last few decades by the Taiwan Relations Act, uh, the three U.S.-China joint communiques, and the six assurances that were issued under President Reagan. But the phrase that most Americans think of when we think of our relationship with Taiwan is strategic ambiguity. And the idea of strategic ambiguity is we don't say what we would do if the People's Republic of China tried to change the status quo across the strait by force. You disagree with that, though. You believe that the U.S. has a policy going back decades since, I believe, Carter— of strategic clarity. So, can I ask, what do you mean by strategic clarity when it comes to the
1: defense of Taiwan from the
0: US perspective?
1: Because strategic ambiguity doesn't exist. It's a made up a concept uh, in Washington by a few policy uh, makers uh, who really are for policy indolence and rather than active uh, pursuing of strategic clarity. Now, listen, uh, the fact that Taiwan Strait has maintained free for over seven decades, has nothing to do with strategic ambiguity, has everything to do with strategic clarity. Before 1980, there was a, a mutual defense treaty signed between Taiwan and the United States. So that you know, mutual defense is no problem. After 1980, after Mr. Carter unilaterally uh, terminated uh, the treaty, the strategic clarity took on new form Taiwan uh, a Taiwan relations mentioned, which committed Americans Uh, support for Taiwan's defense, proportional to the threat uh, Taiwan received from China. And there's also a lot of uh, uh, weapon sales to Taiwan and the presidential declaration. No president has given up the position that the U.S. will defend Taiwan militarily if China launched military action against Taiwan. And most importantly, I might say, this American strategic clarity is so clear to the Chinese leadership, No one in Beijing has ever believed the United States is ambiguous about our resolve to defend Taiwan militarily. So there you go. I mean, strategic ambiguity is just silly talk. That I I don't think there's any evidence to support that. There's always people who say, every time the president declared military intervention in the Taiwan Strait in case of Chinese invasion, the State Department spokesperson or the White House spokesperson would walk back. And that's nonsense. There's never any walking back because what the State Department official and the White House official always say after presidential declaration of military intervention in Taiwan uh, scenario is always that our one China policy has not changed a bit. So that's affirmation of whatever the president has declared, Uh, because as I said earlier, our one China policy consists of three integral parts. That is, we recognize as one China, but also we oppose any use of force by any size to unilaterally change the status quo. And third, that uh, any political settlement must be agreed to by both sides of Taiwan Strait. So you have to look at the three parts altogether to understand why American president's declaration of military intervention is in no way contradicting uh, Americans' one-China policy. And that includes President Biden four times, I believe, has said that the U.S. would defend Taiwan militarily. Yeah. I mean, so you and I work in the government. Um, um, <laughs> and I think, you know, we understand that kind of a continuity and a persistency on uh, um, um, when it comes to Taiwan. So
0: I want to close out our last episode together, Miles. And again, The China Insider is going to continue, but this is the last question that, that I get to Miles. And I want to close it out by talking about um, a subject that we addressed in the first episode that we did together. And that was uh, a series of protests that happened in China, the white paper protests. And this was about ending Zero COVID, but it was also about uh, freedom in China. Um, so I want I want to ask you about Chinese people and how, how they think about these protests and their history, going back all the way back to the May 4th movement in 1919 uh, that you talked about, through Tiananmen in 1989, and to Hong Kong in our own memories uh, in recent years. Um, when you think about these, these pro-freedom, sometimes pro-democracy protests within China, do you think they're going to continue? And what should the outside world make of them?
1: Well, they're definitely going to be continuing because the protests against the repressive regime in China since 1919, since the May force movement has never stopped. As I say, the preponderant ethos of modern Chinese history in the last hundred years is Chinese citizens' consistent search for democracy and individual freedom, most importantly, constitutional democracy. It's actually bizarre and weird for a lot of people in the West. To think that all Chinese is the same. They are all burdened by 5,000 years of history. They're all nationalistic, kind of irrational. No, uh, the fundamental confrontation between the people of China against the Chinese Communist Party has been consistent from the beginning. Many of the protests, of course, are very oblique considering the incredibly repressive methods of control in China, but a lot of times, those uh, protests came uh, into surface uh, like a volcano, like in 1976, uh, the uh, April 15th protest in Tiananmen Square, and 1989 protest in Tiananmen Square as well. And you can see, you know, uh, uh, the protest. Uh, um, you no know, it, it's constant. If, if you ask the Chinese leadership uh, what really is on their mind every day, what keeps them up at night, I can guarantee you, they will tell you if they're useful it is a uh, the uh, countless protest each day in China on the regional level against injustice and the party rule so there was a lot of protests but it were not it's not reported on it's, it's sort of you know uh, remain subterranean and that's very unfortunate so it's very important for us to be on the right side of history when we formulate uh, foreign policy just as we did in the 1980s and 1990s on the side of uh, people in Poland solidarity on the side of people on the street in Czechoslovakia and in Hungary. So this is very important because as the US is a leading power of global inspiration and this this is really the hearts or minds of issue for the United States. If we sort of you know give up on that power of inspiration and our global leadership will be in serious question.
0: I think that's a great uh, note to end on. A a fact that really drills home to me, uh, what you just said, Miles, is that the PRC spends more on internal security, internal repression than it does on its external defense budget uh, for the PLA. So I think that that really drills it home as well. Um, I want to thank you, Miles, for uh, allowing me the opportunity to do this um, and to continue to learn from you through China Insider. Uh, And I'm really looking forward to the next stage in the evolution of this podcast. We've we've reached a great audience that we're very grateful for. And it's going to continue to uh, get better and better.
1: Well, good luck, Wilson. We'll miss you greatly. And uh, thank you for everything you have done for this podcast.
0: Thanks for tuning in to this episode of The China Insider, a podcast from the China Center at Hudson Institute. We appreciate Hudson for making this podcast possible follow Miles and all of the additional great work we do at Hudson.org. Please remember to rate and review this podcast, and we'll see you next time on The China Insider.